0: Join me as I pray. Father, we're so thankful for this man, thankful for the words that you've given to him. I just ask right now that your spirit would speak through him to us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what he's trying to communicate, Lord. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ be revealed to us in a new way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Bob. What are you doing? Yes. There we are. Okay, good, 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 good. So as Phil said, we are continuing our series in the book of Galatians, talking about the good news. And I am really excited about what the Lord is going to do. I think Phil's prayer was significant that we would see and hear the gospel in a new way through this series. So last week, we talked about Galatians chapter 1, and we talked about the content of the gospel, how we're justified by faith, and this idea that the power of God and salvation, Romans 1.16, that's the content of the gospel, and that the gospel also has a scope, these things that, as Christians, we're now trying to live our lives in accordance to because of what Jesus did on our behalf. So uh, this week, we're going to talk about how do we keep in step with what we know to be true. Uh, I find it very interesting nowadays. It's really hard for me to keep any commitment that I've made, and I kind of feel this level of discouragement about this time every year. Um, if you're like me, it's May, and that New Year's resolution you made back in January is just about done for this year. It's, <laughs> it's in the rearview mirror, and it is fading away into being invisible. Uh, for me, this year, my goal was to eat a little bit healthier. And those of you who were at the wedding with me uh, last night know that that was not kept in step with. They had unlimited chips and guacamole, and I was you would have thought my goal was to eat as much guacamole as possible. <laughs> it was great, though. It was guacamole, tres leches. It was a really good time. <laughs> so it's so interesting, right? We set these kind of goals, and it's like, yeah, like I want to eat healthier. That's a good thing. And then if you're like me come May, that has kind of faded away. So just to get a feel for maybe where you guys are at in the audience, um, there's a a study done that actually examines the effectiveness of New Year's resolutions and they assigned a percentage to it for the amount of people that can actually keep their resolution all year. So uh, by raise of hands, how many of you think less than 5% of people (laughs) will be able to keep their New Year's resolution this year? (laughs) Well, now you know the answer. (laughs) It's 8%. I was like, man, everybody, has everybody like read this study already? Like people just reading ahead for the sermon. Right. So 8% of people, 8% of people will be able to keep that commitment they made this year. So it's really interesting, right? We make these commitments. It's like, yeah, that's a good thing. Eating healthy, you know, um, getting up earlier, spending more time with our kids, less time on Facebook, whatever you might have. But there's a really low percentage of people that actually can keep in step with what they know to be true. And I was looking at the cover of Christianity Today magazine this week and it kinda hit me like a ton of bricks, right? It's like it's quoting Paul in Romans seven. I think the cover's up there, yeah. So it's it's a picture of a donut. I know it's a little washed out, but it's a picture of a donut and with a bite taken out of it, and it's quoting Paul in Romans sevens. It says this for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I but but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Right? It's, this, it's this tension we live in, that we know many times what we should be doing, but we can't do it. And we know what we shouldn't be doing, but we end up doing that very thing. And I could make a really long list of reasons why I should be eating healthy, and on the, side, on the other side, I could make a really long list of reasons why it's bad for me to eat unhealthy. But it seems like there's something missing that allows me to keep in step with what I know to be true. So. What I want to look at today, what are the tangible graces that God has given us to keep in step with the truth of the gospel? I mean, I'm talking about eating habits, which are absolutely, I think, a part of a response to Christ. But even if we look at things deeper in our lives, lust, pride, greed, anger, being a good friend, a good neighbor, right? How do we keep in step with those things we know in our heart that Christ is calling us to? Most of us know that what's in the Bible, a lot of those things we see, those are the best way for us to live. But there are tangible graces that when we know about them, we can take hold of and allow them to keep us in step with what we know to be true. So we're going to pick up in Galatians 2 this week, just a quick review of last week. In chapter 1, right? Paul talked about the content of the gospel and was defending it, uh, was defending the idea that we're justified by faith and by faith alone. In chapter 2 this week, Paul is continuing to also explain his journey of becoming an apostle. And continuing in that, he's going to give us a few things that I think answer this question about the tangible graces that God has given us to keep in step with what we know to be true. So we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 2 this week. If you have your Bible, open up. We're going to start right at the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to take this in chunks. So I'll I'll read a, a few verses, then we'll talk about them, and then we'll keep going. So Galatians chapter 2, we're going to start right at verse uh, verse 1. It says this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. We did not give in to them, even for a moment, so that the, gospel, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, so Paul is continuing to explain his journey of becoming an apostle and a leader in the early church. And now what he's doing, he's in Jerusalem and he's meeting with some of the early church leaders at the time. And we have some disputes arise because of, this is a theme from last week, right? There was this tendency for people to add commandments to the gospel in addition to justification by faith. These are the false believers that Paul is talking about in the passage. Now that's a tendency that's going on in the church in Galatia. And it's also a tendency for me, too, to try to add additional requirements to the gospel or to my justification. And in this case, right, it was the idea of circumcision. You had to keep these certain uh, aspects of the Jewish covenant to be right with God. And Paul is continuing to refute that. I just want to make a note here. One, One of the ways that we can contaminate or add to the gospel, or one of the specific things that we try to add to the gospel a lot of times, are our own cultural norms. And that's a bit of what's happening here. Circumcision was a cultural norm for people at the time, and it was very tempting for them to add that as a requirement to the gospel. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to come up to it a little bit later in the sermon today. right? But that's some of the dynamic with circumcision. It's this additional requirement, and for them it was a cultural norm at the time to be circumcised and adding to the message. But Paul, he continues to protect the message, and in his own words, persevere in the truth. So the first tangible grace that I think God gives us in the ability to keep in step with what we know to be true is knowledge. Knowledge is a tangible grace that God gives us. See, Paul would have been a, this would have been a perfect opportunity for Paul to allow a lie to come in and have his mind change, and thus even the lives of those around him, Titus, Barnabas, the other believers. And he's able to protect that because he knows what's true. He has knowledge, which is sometimes overlooked, I think, in our our kind of very heady Western, you know, we think everybody's got degrees, right? We can't underscore the importance, though, of actually knowing what is true. I remember times in my life where, by God's grace, I've been able to persevere and grow in my faith in Christ. One of the most beneficial things that I've been able to come back to is knowledge. And specifically, some of the things that I learned when I was in, we called it CFTS at the time, now I know you guys call it ADS, right? Our discipleship school. I was in that school in 2012, and one of the things that we did that I know you guys do nowadays, I think there are different verses, but they had us memorize an entire chapter of the Bible. And for us, it was Romans chapter 8. Uh, I can't recite the entire chapter to you verbatim, but I know chunks of it really well. And one of the, one of the things that I came back to and still come back to today all the time was that first verse in Romans 8 verse 1. Those of you that were in the school probably know it, right? There is therefore now no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So times in my life when I wanted to add to the gospel, when I wanted to be justified by faith and the size of my life group were justified by faith and how well I'm doing on my job, or even just hearing Aaron share earlier, this temptation to want to make something like motherhood, something that we, an additional requirement to the gospel. Romans chapter eight, verse one, continually recited in my head. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even in moments where I was in sin and I was wrong and I needed to be corrected, the idea that there's no condemnation, we're not stuck. We're not stuck in any pattern or accusation that the enemy would make in us because we're in Christ. That was a powerful truth. And it's just one verse in the Bible that I was able to recall to help me keep in step with what I knew to be true. And this is something we see Jesus doing, right? When he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what is he reciting? It is written, it is written, it is written, responding directly to the threats of the enemy With the word of God, and one of the reasons this is so important is because a lot of times what we're tempted with is not something that's diametrically opposed to what we know to be true. Look what what's going on here in the early church, right? The gospel they're tempted with is just it's gospel, but it's also you know just a little bit of circumcision, right? And so what we're tempted with a lot of times is not diametrically opposed to truth; it's just what we know to be true with a little bit of a lie in there. And so if we don't have really good knowledge in our head about what we know to be true, we can give in to those false gospels that are out there. The gospel plus motherhood, the gospel plus marriage, the gospel plus being a good life group leader, right? Those are things that we have to hold on to. That's why the Bible, it's so important for us to have it in our heads. It's not just another book. This is God's tangible grace given to us via his inspired error-free word. And it's such a I think sometimes such a a given that we memorize it, that we read it. But it's important. It helps us keep in step with what we know to be true. I even think of the greatest commandment, right? That we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. Our minds are important places, and we keep important things in them. And we can easily keep in step with what we know to be true by hiding God's word in our minds and in our hearts. Our minds and our memories... They're a battlefield because what we think of constantly, that actually shapes our identity. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in in his heart, so he is. And so the next place we're going to go, in addition to having the tangible grace of knowledge, is also thinking about our identity in the correct way. So let's pick up in Galatians chapter 2. Now we're going to look at verse 6. We're going to start at verse 6 and go go another few verses here. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 6. This is Paul continuing to explain his journey of apostleship. Here we go. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the task to preach the gospel to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing we had been eager to do all along. So in this meeting with early church leaders... Paul shares the gospel with him that he's preaching with the Gentiles. They're like, that sounds great. And so there's a bit of a missionary split happening here. Paul is going to go reach the uh, uncircumcised or the Gentiles. Peter and the other apostles are going to go reach the circumcised or the Jews. And what's key here and what's our second means of perseverance and keeping in step with the truth is Paul's ability to run his own race. This is a significant passage because Paul was probably not indifferent about doing ministry amongst the Jews. Paul himself is a Jew. And even as we read in Romans chapter 9, Paul describes the passion he has to do ministry amongst the Jews. It says this. It says, I have deep sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. Those brothers who he's referring to, those are his fellow Jews. So Paul has a real passion to do ministry amongst the Jews, but he's able to set aside that and run his own race and accept the calling that Christ has on his life. And part of that's because what we learned last week, Paul and the way he viewed life was changed when he had an encounter with Jesus. Paul used to be a religious persecutor. Paul used to try to destroy the faith, but now Paul has a holistic value for life. And that value for life allows him to reach out to those ethnic others, those Gentiles, that Jews used to separate himself from. So Paul's value for life here is so holistic that he's willing to set aside his passion to do ministry amongst his own people and run his own race and do ministry amongst the Gentiles. Now, additionally, I'm going to take a bit of an aside here. Remember, Paul's view of life was holistic. That was one of the things we pulled out last week. Here is where Paul also exhorts the other apostles and accepts the challenge himself to remember the poor. Now, we may have... uh, you know, temporary callings and kind of temporary missions in life that we need to run our own race for, right? This idea of contentment is, a, I think, a real tangible grace that God gives us. But one thing I see pretty consistently throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Psalms, in the Prophets, in the Gospels, is the call for the people of God to care for the poor. Now, this is a, it's a, it's a complex issue when you really think about, you know, how do you holistically minister to those in poverty, and it's something we can and should wrestle with. And even as I look in the New Testament, Acts chapter 11, we see the early church doing this idea of taking up an offering. Everyone's pulling together their money, their resources, their time to provide for those in need. This is something I actually did a few years back as a life group leader and wanting to kind of live out this truth of wanting to care for the poor. The life group I was in at the time, we decided to uh, volunteer with an organization here in Brighton called Cradles to Crayons. They're still here, great organization. And what we did was the, the, the time we, we were going to spend in faith group, we actually dedicated to going over there and helping uh, helping them sort out some things within their giving factory. They give away clothes and uh, coats and things to children who are in need in the area. We also gave financial and, and clothing resources as well. And all in all, I think it was a pretty successful night. I'm like, okay, the Bible's calling us to remember the poor. I'm helping do this as a faith group leader. I feel like this is, we're on the right path here. But here's the thing, uh, comparison can be an enemy to our persevering in the truth. I remember a few weeks later, I got on Facebook, and that was probably my first mistake, but I got on Facebook, and I saw this video of this organization that's also caring for the poor, and they bought a factory, and they used that factory to make coats and go out and distribute them to people in need. And in addition to that, they also took people off the streets and hired them to work in the factory so they were creating this own little economy where people could also get their needs met but also have a more sustainable way to support themselves. And I'm like, man, that's a really cool idea. But in a way, it's actually pretty discouraging for me to watch that video because sometimes we can have the knowledge in our head of the truth but then also when we're confronted with something someone else is doing, what's really in our heart comes out. And what was really in my heart at that time was a justification by works and not by faith. So when you see someone else and it makes you insecure, a lot of times that's a sign that we're walking in a works righteousness and not a justification by faith. And personally for me, I feel discouraged a lot of times as this complex and and, and, and multi-nuanced issue of caring for the poor comes up. Because there's always somebody doing it better, doing it more sustainably, doing it with better money, time, resources than I am. And it's tough. It's tough to see that. But if we really believe, like Paul says, that we're justified by faith and not by works, not even something as important as caring for the poor, we can persevere. We can keep in step with the truth. And I love how Paul says it in Hebrews 12, this idea of running our own race. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So the ability to run our own race, to focus on what God is calling us to, that's another tangible grace that God gives us as we try to keep in step with what we know to be true. But here's the thing, even with knowledge... Even with having the right things in our head, even with running our own race, kind of knowing the direction we should be going in, we need others to come around us. We need others to hold us accountable. And even in the early church, Peter, who's called Cephas in this passage, right, the early church leader, the guy who's all over the Gospels with Jesus doing all types of crazy things, right, even Peter himself needs to be held accountable and needs to walk in community to keep in step with the truth. And that's our final tangible grace is the ability to hold one another accountable. So let's pick up in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 11 and go through to verse 18. So here it is. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men from James came, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. Okay, so here's what's going on here. Peter meets Paul in Antioch, which was Paul's kind of home base for church planting while he was doing his missionary work. And they're in essentially what's like a potluck setting. In the New Testament, they had what were called love feasts, where a lot of people from the church would get together, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-class, people from all different walks of life, and they'd share a meal. They'd also take communion at the end of that meal. So you have Jews there, right? former Jews. You also have Gentiles there who are eating together, which was a revolutionary concept. The idea of eating together is something we might look at a little more flippantly than they did at the time there in the Bible. It was really significant to share a meal with someone in that culture. And that's what this love feast was reflecting, this multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-class gathering of believers centering and sharing a meal around Jesus. So Peter, who was a Jew, is eating with Gentiles. But then when certain men from James, this is referring back to some of his old Jewish brothers, when they show up, Peter withdraws from those Gentiles he's eating with because of fear. And so Peter backs away and refuses now to eat with the Gentiles. One, because for a Jew, uh, it would have been culturally, uh, culturally not acceptable for him to eat with Gentiles, and then also culturally unacceptable for Peter to eat what Gentiles eat, which a lot of times was pork, which, praise God, we're not living under that requirement anymore. Bacon, ribs... Go on forever. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But Peter is eating the bacon and he's eating the ribs, right? And then his old buddies show up and he's like, oh, I can't do this. I got to back away, right? So he's pulling back. And this is not in line with the step of the gospel, specifically for Peter, because Peter had a really significant history with the Lord and helping him tear down this wall that he had built in his mind around not being able to eat and to fellowship with a Gentile. So, just a quick backstory about Peter. In the book of Acts, Peter has some really uh, significant revelation from God. In Acts chapter 10, God appears to Peter in a dream and tells him specifically, don't call unclean what I have called clean. This is referring to the food that the Gentiles would eat. So God was saying, look, in the old covenant, we used to center worship around as a symbol. We used to center it around the culture of the Jews. But now in the new covenant, we're putting it around the culture of everybody. So it's no longer held culturally captive by just what Jewish people want to do. So in the New Covenant, God reveals to Peter in that dream that he should be as a sign of showing God's love to all people, partaking in the food that Gentiles eat. So go, kill, eat. And Peter responds to that. As we read further in Acts, Peter has significant interactions with things and people that were seen as unclean. The first is this man named Simon the Tanner. That would have been unclean for a Jew at the time to interact with someone who was a Tanner. And then in addition to that, Peter has a significant interaction with a man named Cornelius, he's a Roman centurion, also would have not been culturally acceptable for Jews to be around people who are Roman centurions. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter has the knowledge, he vocalizes it himself, Acts chapter 10 verses 34 and 35, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and who does what is right. But this is where accountability comes in even with the right knowledge in his head, even after having significant interactions with those people and that culture that he used to distance himself from, further along, in the book of Galatians, we see Peter, who's had the dream, who's had the conversation with those people, who's eaten the food, got got it all from God, heard the sermon directly from God, said the truth himself, now he's acting out of line. What is comfortable for him. So I'm I'm not saying Peter or even people today are always malicious about enforcing additions to the gospel that are cultural norms but in both cases Paul calls them out as being out of step with the truth of the gospel. In one case Paul has to persevere in the truth and share what the true gospel is. In this case he actually confronts Peter face to face about walking out of line with the truth. Now there was a time in this country where I believe division and cultural norms like slavery were defended as gospel imperatives and that was done purposefully Uh, Frederick Douglass, who was a black abolitionist back in 1845, reflected that there was the widest possible margin between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ. Now, I believe that margin still exists today. I think it exists in a different nature, and many times it's out of, like, Peter. It's out of fear. It's done because it's what we're comfortable with and it's what we're used to. And I could give you books that describe... And I've read really great books that describe how that margin still exists today. But I think there's something we can learn even from the passage here about the specifics to that question becoming answered when we sit face to face and we share meals with people who are different than us. Ethnocentrism, holding the gospel culturally captive, a lot of our cultural norms are just blind spots. They don't just go away by osmosis. And that's why I'm really encouraged that in a church named Antioch, which is where this whole thing is going down that between Peter and Paul, it's at Antioch. That's the name of our church, Antioch, that we can be a people who have those same types of graceful interactions where we call one another to walk in line with the truth of the gospel and not with what we consider to be culturally normative. It's very encouraging even to hear specifically how that's happening. Uh, Ujumwa is leading a group called the Radical Church Dinner Series where they're doing that, Right? They're sharing dinner. They're talking about race. They're talking about justice. And they're holding one another accountable to live in line with the truth of the gospel. It's really encouraging. I was talking with her last week about how those conversations are going. Those are the type of things we can do to hold one another accountable to walking in line with God's truth and not our cultural norms. Now, even with, even with knowledge in our head about what we know to be true, even with the ability and the grace God gives us to run our own race and not have to compare ourselves with others, and even with the ability to hold each other accountable, I think there's a final grace here that's kind of the glue that holds all this together. And I want us to respond to this. I'm going to call the band back up as I wrap up here. This picks up in Galatians 2, and it's the final few verses here. It says this, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and who gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Those are significant verses. I want to read them again because I think they're so powerful. It says this, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life, I live, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So whether it's our New Year's resolution, or whether it's a more serious sin pattern in our lives that we want to be free from, Our ultimate hope, alongside holding each other accountable, alongside running our own race, alongside knowledge and knowing what's actually true, the ultimate grace that God gives us to walk in line with his truth is the idea of Jesus Christ living in us. There's a part in the Gospels I really like in John 20, 21 and 22. The disciples have been ministering with Jesus for years now. He was crucified, he's resurrected, and before he goes back to be with the Father... He breathes on his disciples and tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. So in all of our efforts and in all of the efforts of the disciples at that time, Jesus knew that there was a tangible grace, his Holy Spirit, that we need to help hold us in step with what we know to be true. And that's what I want us to respond to this morning. Maybe we do need to seek out accountability in our lives. Maybe we do need to increase our knowledge and get a more serious pattern of memorizing scripture, right? Maybe we do need to focus on what the Lord is calling us to in the moment. In all of that, I'm saying we should absolutely go for it. But our ultimate hope is Christ living in us. So I'm going to pray that Jesus would breathe on those efforts that we put forth this morning. That the life of Christ, and specifically his Holy Spirit, would be on our efforts as we seek to keep in step with what we know to be true. If you want to respond to that, just hold, hold your hands out and receive. Jesus, we need your breath. We need your Holy Spirit on our efforts to be good mothers, to be good friends, good neighbors, Lord. As we seek out the tangible instructions you've given us in scripture, to remember the poor, to hold one another accountable, Lord, to walk in knowledge, to know the truth, to persevere in it. We need your Holy Spirit to help us this morning. We're not asking for just instructions, we're asking for grace asking for your grace to give us power to live in step with the truth god thank you that your word is truth that you've given it to us lord that we don't have to um search it out but it's near to us it's right here it's in in most of our hands it's in, on most of our phones lord let that become alive to us as we seek to be people people who you created us to be lord people who christ died for us to be people who are justified by faith who have that message of Jesus that attracted the lowly, the outsider. God, we want to be people who are living in response to your grace and nothing else. So would your Holy Spirit come and breathe on our efforts, Lord. Give us power. Give us your grace, Lord. We repent for ways that maybe we've walked in our own strength, that we thought we could do it or figure it out on our own. And this morning, we just ask afresh. We say, Lord, we can't do it without you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Holy Spirit, would you come in this time? Amen.